Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Deer hunting in Australia, and how to shoot 16 rounds of ammunition and still not have your rifle scope zeroed on this episode of Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. Hello, everyone. We've got some fun letters from our fans, including a long one from Dusty, who's had a heck of a time trying to zero his rifle. Let's uh, read this tale of woe and see if we can't learn some lessons from good old Dusty. Last year, I wanted to go hunting with my brother. I started looking online into the different calibers, and I narrowed my choices down to .30-06, 308, and 270. During my search, I had talked to my brother and my friend about what caliber I should go with. Just about every time my brother mentioned the 6.5 Creedmoor. I don't know what it is about the Creedmoor, but I just don't like it. Anyhow, I kept looking and watching the videos. When I finally settled on 270, my brother mentioned 6.5 PRC. I hadn't run across this one in my search, so I took a look and I thought, wow, this is a lot like a 270 on paper. His declaration that it was a tack driver and that he owns one and had dropped a cow elk at 300 plus yards with it had me convinced. During the search, I had also watched a few of your videos, and I think you said something to the effect that the 6.5 PRC is the new or modern 270. So I bought a Bergara Ridge and a Vortex Scope from a local gun shop. They were kind enough to mount it, and I proceeded to the range with a box of ammo. <laughs> My ignorance was on full display at this point. After shooting 16 rounds, I discovered the crosshair adjustment screws were not anywhere near where they needed to be to be able to hit the target at 100 yards. <laughs> I kept thinking that I was jerking or flinching, and believe me, after 16 rounds, my shoulder was starting to feel the recoil. The aha moment was when I figured out how to adjust the zoom level on the scope. I opened it up and I saw, or I tightened it up and then I saw that on the 25-yard target, the rounds were not in too shabby of a group. 
Well, with this new information, I decided that I would first attempt to get the rounds to hit at the height I was aiming. And not knowing anything about clicks and quarter MOAs, I just cranked it down about eight clicks. It was still high, so I cranked it down another 16. And voila, I'm hitting at least the right height. Still believing, knowing that I was flinching, I fired off two more shots and I left happy that at least I was hitting the target. In the back of my mind, I kept thinking something wasn't right. When I got home, I watched some videos on how to zero a scope. The first and last one was a view demonstrating how to bore sight. <sighs> I wish I'd seen that earlier. After watching this video, I pulled my rifle out and I set up a target at the end of my hall and I about had a heart attack. The crosshairs were nowhere near where they needed to be. I initially thought that the scope was defective, but a quick perusal of the owner's manual showed me how to adjust the crosshairs based on those quarter-click MOA adjustments. So, I spent the next few nights setting up the target, looking down the barrel, and verifying the crosshairs were on target. Fast forward two or three weeks, and I go to an indoor range. I'm not dead on, but by golly, it's a lot closer. Three rounds within an each of each other at 60 yards. So I go home, set in my target, move the crosshairs to the bullet holes, and I make another call to my friend who invited me to go hunting. I told him about the improvement, and he said, well, we'll sight it in when we get there. Well, pride kicked in, one more trip to the outdoor range, and I am hitting at 100 yards, darn close to where I'm aiming. Less than an inch off. Well, I attributed this miss to flinching. So finally, the hunting trip begins. I hit something on the road and I lost two tires. I call a buddy and ask him if he could help me out. He does. So I'm back on the road. I make it to camp, but I'm six hours later than expected. On the first day, we don't see or hear anything. The second day starts off with my friend thinking he sees something. He grabs my gun by mistake. And as he sets it down again, I hear something rattle. My scope is loose. <sighs> After bemoaning my luck, and hand-tightening the nut that holds the scope to the Picatinny rail, we agree that he will do the shooting. Meat is better than no meat. If we see two deer at the same time, well, then we'll both take a shot. Well, as luck would have it, we saw two. I lined up on the closer one, and the rest is history. But, Dusty, what's the history? You lined up, and the rest is history, but we don't know it. Did you miss or did you get him? <laughs> I'm assuming Dusty got him, but <laughs> I want to thank Dusty for being brave enough to write in and expose this stuff. This is one of my patrons, and obviously he didn't, well, maybe he didn't want me to expose it to the world. He was just sharing it with me, but since you don't know who he is, I'm not giving out his full name. <laughs> I thought it was worth the, the education for the rest of us, because who hasn't done that? Gone out with a too little information and burned up a bunch of ammo and being no closer to having that rifle and scope zero than when you started. <laughs> well, I wrote Dusty back and I said, wow, Dusty, that is one wild tale of woe. It reminds me of that old carpenter's rule. Measure twice, cut once. I too wish you had watched my sight-in video first or read that scope manual. Hey, but look at it this way. The school of hard knocks produces lasting results. Congratulations on your deer, assuming you got one, and continued success going forward. Oh, that was sweet. Appreciate that one, Dusty. Hey, let's read this one from another patron. This is Jim. Hi, Ron, a longtime uh, YouTube viewer of yours and a new subscriber. I have often wondered why you have never done a talk on muzzle brakes. 
I have one on my 300 Win Mag, but I know nothing about what they actually do or if they can affect accuracy. I do know that the recoil is less. Thanks for all that you have shown, Jim. I wrote back, hey, Jim, thank you for your support. I never dived into brakes because I really don't find all that much difference among them. Aficionados will nitpick, but for me, if the brake softens recoil without blowing a lot of dust up in my face, well, that's good enough. I rarely need brakes for recoil reduction, and I hate them for the hearing damage that they do, but they do help keep one on target or the, the target in view during the shot. Yes, there's some dampening recoil more than others, but not enough for me to be concerned about it. Suppressors do the same thing, but with less noise, so I'm rolling with those right now on a couple of rifles, and I might get more, but they are ugly. <laughs> so, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of detail on muzzle brakes, but people who just are really into them have all kinds of great information on what angle the slots should be cut at to minimize the recoil and Gosh, you don't want one on the bottom of that brake because that blows all that powder gas down and all that wind uh, blows dust up in your face. I've had that happen way back when, when they were first starting to come out with these muzzle brakes. So if you are getting a muzzle brake, you should be able to determine roughly what percentage of the recoil that they will dampen and also any advantages to, oh gosh, some of them will even hide muzzle flash, but that's a military thing. We really don't need concern about that for hunting. So, yeah, do your research. I'm sure if I really dived into muzzle brakes, I would find out there are all sorts of tiny little differences and arcane differences because there are so many people who build them and, and offer. Why would they bother if they weren't thinking that they were getting some kind of an improvement? I just haven't done a lot of research into it. I have several muzzle brakes and several rifles, and they do knock down the recoil, which I figure is their job. So. Sorry, I couldn't help you any more than that, Jim. Uh, let's see who's next here. Daniel, is there any chance you might have access to a Winchester 1895 for 30-06 week? Maybe also a Springfield 1903 and or a Lee Enfield model 1917. So what Daniel here, another of our patrons, is asking about is an upcoming episode we're going to do, or several of them, um, along the lines of 308 Winchester week. We're going to do 30-06 week and test a bunch of rifles in 30-06. And he, of course, is suggesting we use the lever action 1895, which is pretty different for 30-06. You don't find a lot of lever actions in it. Um, and then the Springfield 1903 was our U.S. military rifle of that year. Um, it was in that that time chambered for the 3003 cartridge, which was preceding the 30-06. Really, the only difference between those two is that the uh, 3003 shot a 220 grain bullet, and the 30-06 was pushed down to 170 grain pointed bullet for better ballistics. That was back in the era when they were st just starting to figure out the advantages of a higher BC bullet. Uh, I don't even know if they called it ballistics coefficient in that day, but but they did tumble to the idea that they could keep more energy in that bullet, shoot faster and reach farther and have more effect with a lighter bullet. And that became the 30-06. There's a slight difference in the neck length between the two as well. But the rifle, the, the Springfield 03, bold action, World War One military rifle, replaced by the time World War II came along with the auto-loading Garand rifle. And then the Lee Enfield was the British bold action rifle in the war. Uh, that one was usually chambered for the 303 British. 
but I guess it was chambered for the 30-06. And several U.S. companies manufactured those rifles for the war effort, um, Remington being one of them. So we will try to find that, Daniel, but no guarantees. I think what we're going to do is kind of do a rough research um, on popular rifles in 30-06 that most people would be looking for and or buying because the whole idea is to give information on, hey, looking for a 30-06, here are some of your options. We're going to try to find a, a lever action and a pump and a brake action, maybe a falling block, some bolt actions. I'm not really sure what we'll all come up with, but I don't think we're going to get something really obscure because then people will, like, where do I get one? <laughs> kind of hard to do. So, But hey, thanks for bringing that up. And uh, other folks have ideas like that. We're always entertaining ideas on what to uh, present. We want to present things that everyone likes or is interested in. Oh, I almost missed a page here. Looks like something Betsy put together. This is from Jeff. Ron, I love your videos and I watch all of them. Jeff, you know how to win friends and influence people right there. <laughs> Appreciate that. Very informative and great content. Unfortunately, it is getting harder to practice our sporting passions, mainly confined to public crown lands, or if you have permission from the large acreage landowners, permission to hunt on their land. But here in Australia, well, we still have a large feral deer population in the Alpine high country that requires a considerable distance to travel. There's a short time span available to hunt. The deer are also appearing in areas not too far from localities in suburbia and in county areas or country areas where new residences are popping up. So it's getting tougher to hunt in Australia, according to Jeff. He says best best wishes to all of your viewers from down under. And as I've often said, we just love hearing from our down under fans and would like to get back to Australia someday and hunt. I did it just one time back in the early 2000s when the um, WSM cartridges were coming out. Winchester and I think Brownie might have been invited on that one too, but we, I definitely remember using a Winchester rifle in the 270 WSM and taking those big water buffalo. Had great luck with that. So we, we tried them all, the 300, the 7, and the 270 WSM and, and had great luck with them on buffalo. But uh, that was just one spot in Australia. And uh, I'd love to go back and find out what else. I guess they have a good mix of introduced deer species down in the south. So if anyone's thinking of heading to uh, Australia, it sounds like you need to get things lined up with an outfitter or a landowner. Uh, you're not going to just waltz on out there and find a lot of public land to work on. All right, here's uh, JW. Ron, I think you're goofy too. And I love it. Capital exclamation points. It would, uh, I would so much rather spend my time hanging out with and watching someone like you who has fun with life than some stick in the mud. <laughs> it's okay, J JW is referring to some folks who wrote in and said that I act kind of goofy on my videos and they don't like me being goofy, but JW does. And so does my wife, but she says sometimes I do get a little too goofy, so I'll try to keep it down. <laughs> but hey, thanks for that, JW. I mean, we are who we are, and I just try to enjoy life. And if something strikes my funny bone, I don't mind sharing it and acting like I'm actually enjoying it or make fun of things that are pretty light and fluffy. But why not? Life is short. Let's enjoy it. Here's someone called Bocane. I don't know if that has any reference to cocaine or hope not. But at any rate, Bocane says, I'm with you concerning the Aram affair. Oh, that ugly business again. Hey, let's cancel the drama and take 
away some lessons. The one point you didn't mention that can be teachable is this. Experienced hunters need to be ambassadors for the sport, not adversaries to new hunters. Yeah, that's a good point, Bokeen. Um, and if you haven't been following this incident, I'm not going to rehash the whole thing, but it boils down to a, shall we say, a personality or a writer in the industry who had written some really well done pieces on good ethical behavior, apparently did just the opposite in the field on a hunt. And people are tearing him down and lambasting him and just, and I, my point was, I wasn't there. I don't know exactly what happened. I don't think it's fair to vilify anyone online, but I do think we all can learn from those kinds of mistakes because face it, very few of us are perfect and never make mistakes. So uh, finding out some sad story like this and then using that information to reinforce our resolve to be ethical, I think is the right way to go. And Bokane here agrees with me. We all should be ambassadors for hunting and set a great example for everyone else. All right, let's see what the team has pulled up here. We're going to go to Minnesota where Justin is writing. Hi, Ron. Thanks for all the information you put into the world for us outdoorsmen and women. I'm writing in response to a gentleman asking a question about what cartridge he should get, looking for low recoil for varmints and then up to deer and occasionally a nuisance black bear, perhaps. The 243 Winchester was discussed along with the 6.5 Creedmoor and some others. Over the past 31 years, I've taken whitetails with a 7 Rem Mag, a 30-06 Springfield, a 270 Winchester, a 6.5 Creedmoor, a 12-gauge Slug, and a 357 Magnum Revolve. About 15 years ago, I switched to Barnes bullets for every caliber I shoot, mostly the TTSX, simply because there are hundreds of eagles around where I hunt, and I don't want them coming across lead in gut piles. After the switch, I could not believe the difference in almost every animal dropping in its tracks. Everyone in our hunting party switched to Barnes bullets over the next couple of years as well. We didn't lose a wounded deer after that. The performance was great. Hey, that's good news, Justin. And what Justin is uh, saying about the lead in gut piles and eagles is there's all sorts of evidence and documentation of eagles eating on dead deer gut piles and leftovers in the woods where the Typical cup and core bullet fragments and leaves little pieces of lead. And it doesn't take much of that to get into a bird that will kill it. it they break it down and it gets into their blood system and sled poisoning. Um, and I think we should be concerned about stuff like that. As responsible conservation hunters, who wants to have collateral damage like that? And there are quite a few scavenging birds that have been found lead poisoned from that stuff. Oh, he's going... Justin's writing more. Let's keep going here. Last fall, my buddy got a new 6.5 Creedmoor, and he handed down his 243 Winchester to his son, who got his first shot at a deer. Before he had switched to Barnes Bullets, we lost some deer that we thought had decent shot placement using soft points and similar bullets. Well, when his, his son shot the buck at about 75 yards, we thought it was a good hit, and the deer ran off, something we haven't seen much of lately. We waited an hour until dark and then went to the spot of impact. We found where the deer was standing, but no blood and no hair. We tried tracking footprints in the direction the deer went, but after 90 minutes, we couldn't find the buck. We ended up doing a grid search and found the buck dead and stiff about 125 yards away. We eventually found the entrance and the exit. In fact, the deer was shot through the heart, but not a single drop of blood left the deer's body. That's the first time we've seen that happen. 
It's tough to say if the bullet penciled or not. This situation did tell us it never hurts having something a little larger than what's needed just in case. Thanks. Feel free to edit for length. I tend to <laughs> a lot of details. Yeah, I want to know Justin. Those details were just great. Now, yeah, this can happen with any bullet. Too often people have a deer run off about 100, 125 yards like that, leave no blood trail and say, well, the bullet penciled through, it didn't open. You just had a bullet, tiny little hole. So having a larger diameter bullet would help with something like that. But there is not evidence that that bullet did not open. At least even uh, Justin here said that. He just assumed it, but he didn't know for sure. And what I have found is that usually those bullets are opening, if not always. It's hard to tell when they pass through. But it's just not fair to say if there's a hole on both sides, the bullet passed through without opening. And it is not unusual for a heart shot deer to run that far. I've had it happen many a time with many an animal. So you, as I've always said, a hunter is a tracker. You, le you learn to read sign. You watch the animal and the impact of the bullet and try to figure things out as they happen. And then apply your knowledge and be persistent in your tracking. You're not always going to have a blood trail. Um, and I've had the same issues with a lot of cup and core bullets. The bullet goes in, it stays in, which a lot of people think is the best way because all the energy is expended in the animal and the deer runs off 100, 125 yards or more, one time even 200 yards. And the heart was torn up, the lungs were torn up. But there's just that one little hole going in, so there's less chance for blood trailing. So good point, Justin. Thanks for uh, raising that. So all of us can remember, consider, and understand that that kind of thing happens. All right, now we're going from uh, Justin in Minnesota to Dustin in Pennsylvania. Hello, sir. I've been watching your videos and your great you oh, you are a great writer and video maker. Well, thank you, Dustin. I appreciate that. I was wondering if the barrel twist rate mattered for coyote hunting with your second best coyote cartridge, the twenty two two fifty. I am looking at a Bergara B14 Hunter and a CVA Cascade rifle. I know they are both made by Bergara, but the twist rates are different with Bergara being 1 in 9. CVA is 1 in 12 as far as I can tell from what I have found online. Thank you for your time, and I'm curious if it would make a difference in hunting, and if it uh, does, would it be a noticeable difference? Thank you again, sir. Take care, Dustin. Yeah, Dustin, it will matter if you want to shoot the longest, highest BC bullets in that 22250. Generally, factory loads of 22250 stop at 55 grain bullets, sometimes 60 grains. But hand loaders, if they have the right twist rate, will go to 65, 70, 75 grain, sometimes even 80 grain bullets. With my 22250 AI, I had the barrel twisted to one and eight, and I am able to stabilize upwards of 75 grain burger uh, bullets, uh, target bullets, really long high BCs. That's kind of my been my go-to coyote load now for, gosh, a good 10 years at least. So, yes, go with that one in nine if you anticipate using some higher BC bullets. But if you're just going to stick with the 55 grains, maybe a 60 grain in the standard boat tail spire point type, you'd be more than well served with a one in 12. Okay, Cyrus from Arizona. Hello, Ron. I love all your videos, and I consider you to be our modern-day Jack O'Connor. Well, that's a high compliment, and I thank you for that, Cyrus. I have seen many times people correcting and commenting about the oh-so-horrible oh, oh so horrible topic of the Coriolis Force. 
In your last podcast, you asked if pilots knew about this because, well, they fly all over the world and have to take this into account. Well, you're in luck because I am a pilot. (laughs) Okay. In one of our handbooks, it explains Coriolis very simply. The Coriolis force significantly affects motion over long distances, such as an air mass or a body of water. The Coriolis force deflects air to the right in the northern hemisphere, causing it to follow a curved path instead of a straight line. The amount of deflection differs depending on the latitude. It is greatest at the poles and diminishes to zero at the equator. That sounds right. The magnitude of Coriolis force also differs with the speed of the moving body. The greater the speed, the greater the deviation. This is the pilot's handbook of aeronautical knowledge. So I think this now is Cyrus switching back to his voice, but I don't know for sure. It is similar to water going down a drain. It is constantly turning right until it makes a full circle in the northern hemisphere. It's also responsible for how tornadoes and hurricanes spin. If you could shoot your bullet and take away drag and gravity, it will make a large circle to the right and eventually return to you, even if it does take tens or hundreds of miles. Sorry for the long essay, but I hope this helps and puts a definite end to all your doubts. Thanks for your time. Sincerely, Cyrus the Pilot, Flight Instructor and Fellow Hunter. Well, thanks for that, Cyrus. Um, I think a couple of the things that were were in that um pilot's handbook, a little different from what my research has been turning up lately, but the the end result is the same. It's always the deviation to the right. I've seen some good descriptions of how, because the earth is spinning more uh, rapidly at the equator, or is it the other way around? Uh, let's not get into it. Several people have re- recently written in and said, let's not talk about Coriolis anymore. <laughs> so I'm going to take their advice and shut up. <laughs> All right, Uh, Dwayne from Florida. On your YouTube channel, I had a reply which said, I may have won a prize. According to the text conversation, I won a SIG. This is a common scam. And the usual is they want you to pay shipping. I am writing to confirm or to deny if this is legitimate. No, it is a legitimate scam. (laughs) You're right, Dwayne. It is a scam, scam, scam. And it pops up over and over and over again. And people say, why don't you get rid of those scams? I don't know how. You get rid of one scammer and he just changes his name, address or whatever it is and keeps it going. So just we put a announcement up on Facebook. And I think we have some on our website as well. And then I'll do verbal ones like this on these shows. We are not giving away SIGs or rifles or ammo or anything else. If we have any giveaway products, you'll see my lips move. <laughs> well, with AI nowadays, it probably put a fake spomer on there and my lips will be moving. It'll still be a lie and a scam. I don't know what to tell you. Just don't bite on this. You've won something free because there is no free lunch. Oh, get tired of that stuff. Welcome to the modern world, eh? All right. Let's see what. Uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, someone named Ray writes this. Not wanting to buy and practice with a 30 caliber magnum to go moose and caribou hunting in Alaska. I'm having trouble finding an outfitter with guides who will guide me on a hunt using my 270 Winchester or my 7mm 08. I understand the rationale for the requirement that the magnums are needed for grizzly protection, but being an inexperienced, I would have thought the protection of that sort would be the full responsibility of the guide. (laughs) And my heavily loaded 270 Winchester could be enough. Please advise what I should do before I give up on the idea of going on this hunt. 
Thank you. Well, Ray, I would say you need to find yourself some different outfitters and guides. I can understand their concern that you should have enough gun for a charging grizzly. But golly, I have hunted Alaska. God, I don't know how many times. Well, over a dozen. Moose, caribou, um, mountain goats, doll sheep, grizzly bears, brown bears. And man, I don't know. I've used all sorts of different cartridges. One time, even a 243 WSM. And here I am, unripped and torn by any grizzly bears, and my guide is even still alive to this day. <laughs> so it's not absolutely necessary. And you're right. A 270 Winchester with a good hard bullet can be just as effective. Mainly when it comes to stopping grizzly bears, you don't need the biggest magnum in the world. You just need a good hard bullet that you can shoot accurately that will reach the vitals. Preferably, the skeletal system, you've got to stop that bear and you can shoot a bear or any other animal, even little small heck jackrabbits in the heart and lungs with a big bullet. And they're going to still be able to move, run, attack or whatever for several seconds. We've seen it happen time and time again. Uh, I once shot a jackrabbit with a 357 Magnum 158 grain bullet, and I thought I'd missed. And I shot again and again and again. That jackrabbit just stayed up and kept hopping off till finally fell over dead, and there were two holes through his chest. Never showed any indication that I'd hit him. So get yourself a good 150 grain, oh, something like an all-copper bullet or a swift A-frame or something that's got a combination of thick jacket, good bonding, and or a partition wall to keep some shank material in. But I really like those copper bullets. They retain so much weight they can penetrate really far. So and that, then find yourself an outfitter and a guide who's going to let you go. But all that said, it would be nice to hear from some outfitters and guides up in Alaska. Um, I know folks like Phil Shoemaker, he's uh, hunting bears and has been for decades now. And he has a lot of good information on that. In fact, he had to once defend his clients against a charging bear that literally stood right over them looking for them. And all he had was a nine millimeter Luger, a handgun with, gosh, I think he had 140 grain hard cast bullets in there. And he said, that's what you need is that the bullet has to really be hard so it can penetrate. And then he just kept shooting that animal, that big, big brown bear behind the shoulder in the heart lungs. And he killed it and it didn't kill him or his guests. But other outfitters will probably have other ideas. So, hey, if you get a chance, write in. Tell us what you think would be a sensible option here. Um, personally, I would rather have Ray with his 270 and comfortable in shooting it than some big magnum that he can't shoot well. All right, John from Colorado. In the realm of defensive ammunition, there's a standard system of valuation using objective gel tests with the FBI penetration standard as a guideline for success or failure. What can we as hunters and reloaders look for in evaluating our ammo choices? Whether it's gel, water jugs, or wet pack newspapers, how deep is deep enough for penetration in each of North America's game animals? Given that wet pack newspaper is denser and cheaper than gel, it seems a good medium for testing medium for uh, deer to elk. And how deep is deep enough? 36 inches, 60 inches. <laughs> Would you recommend another test media altogether that is more analogous? Thanks. Well, John, that's a great question. And I don't really know that each of us needs to have a test medium for our bullets because so many bullets have been tested in so many different media over the years. I think it's probably better to just go on reputation. 
do a lot of research, of course, but we all pretty much know that if you want increased penetration, you need to keep a bullet tough enough to maintain most of or all of its weight that maintains momentum even after you've hit tissue. This, and the less the bullet expands, the deeper it penetrates, but the less it expands, the less tissue it tears. So you're looking for a compromise, which is why these copper bullets have been so effective. They open as wide as the traditional lead core bullets, but they don't lose any of the material. So they've got maximum weight to maintain that penetration. I've shot through moose with the uh, Barnes X bullets. I've shot through grizzly bears with them all the big animals, you can get some incredible penetration. But say a white-tailed deer, I mean, if you get three inches inside of that animal, you're, you're doing damage to the vital organs already. So you don't have to penetrate all the way through. I like it for leaving another hole for blood trailing at the backside. Um, and then if you do want to be shooting into gel blocks or newspapers, you need to realize that even though one of them is a little harder and maybe replicates animal tissue a little better, there's such a variety of tissue in an animal. First, you've got the hair. Then you have the thickness of the skin. And then where is that skin? It's thicker over the shoulders or the rump or some other place on that animal, depending on the species, than it is on the lower chest where you could put it behind the shoulder and easily slip in. And then you've got a bit of muscle before the ribs and then the rib bones themselves. And then you're into the vitals. But if you hit the shoulder, you've got a major muscle group, but not only that, but some bone at various angles that could push the bullet, split the bullet, who knows what. Um, and then if you have to take a quartering shot, quartering at you or from behind, quartering up into the lungs, you may hit some wet material back in the paunch, and that slows bullets down really quickly. There's just too many variables to say, well, this bullet penetrated 14 inches in a ballistic gelatin, so that's the superior bullet. So I don't know what I can tell you. Guys have put slabs of bacon out there and bones from deer or bones from cattle in front of the gel blocks or in front of the newspaper. They put pine boards in it, all sorts of things. Nothing is going to guarantee the same performance on that material as on a live animal. So you can judge that way if you would like to and do your experimenting. It's kind of fun, but I still think based on reputation is probably the way I would go. I mean, we know that Swift A-frames penetrate really, really well. We know that the Barnes X's do. The new cutting-edge bullets, uh, Badlands Precisions, the CX copper bullets from Hornady. Everybody's got copper bullets these days. Do some research and assess those. And then the premium controlled expansion bullets in whatever way they make them that way. Do a little research on that. And I think you're going to find out more than what you need to know for decent penetration. What that penetration is, obviously you're on the right track. The bigger the animal, the more material you need to get through generally to get to the vitals. So just think about that. Um, and I have had some bullets that performed with three feet of penetration through a shoulder, through the ribs, through the uh, lungs, back into the, uh, through the diaphragm and back into the liver. And I mean, just all kinds of stuff. But then I've had some that barely got there because they were too soft. So... Yeah, I'm sorry I can't give you any more absolute information on that because, it's, as I said, it's just too variable. As soon as I lay down the law and say this is the absolute best bullet with this penetration, you're going to find out that when you tried it, it didn't work. And then you're going to blame me. <laughs> so, yeah, do your research and uh, test various media if you want to. But 
I'm really satisfied with what I've learned over the years by shooting actual game animals with these bullets and reading about other people's experiences with them to make a pretty good judgment. And thus far, it has worked out really well. Now, that looks like our last one. Yes, indeed it is. So, John, Ray, Frederico, Dwayne, Cyrus, Dustin, and Justin. I want to thank you guys for sending all that stuff in. And our patrons, thank you for those tales of woe from Dusty on the range, <laughs> figuring out the hard way how to zero his scope and rifle. And, hey, once again, we've come to the end of our time. We want to thank you all for joining us. Until next time, save up those fun stories for us. Let us know what you know and what we might not have gotten right this time because we do want to get it right. And if you'd like to join us on Patreon and get your questions answered ASAP, just go to patreon.com and slash Ron Spomer Outdoors and you should be able to find us and sign up and we will really appreciate it. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time. Hanadison, shoot straight.